Hi, and welcome back to the Genome Podcast. And today I'm delighted to introduce Camilla Fitzsimmons, who's an author, associate professor at Maynooth Universities, amongst many other achievements. So my first question for you, Camilla, would be, how would you describe yourself? Wow, how long have you got? Uh, Big question. I guess, I mean, I suppose I describe myself as an academic activist. It's probably the best label. I'm very fortunate that I have a well-paid job in an ivory tower where I get to research and write about a lot of issues that impact people. But I kind of I was involved in activism long before I was involved in academia and, uh, you know, would have been out on the streets for many years and involved in many campaigns. So for me, what I do is try and create a bridge between the two worlds, try and sometimes just give my skills to... Um, social movements and groups and other times by you know being more proactive in terms of my own ideas around research and and what might help. So one of these um, movements I guess you've been very involved in has been um, sort of making abortion legal in in Ireland and how did you um, get into working for in within the gender equality sector more generally? I mean, for so many of us, there's always, you know, a lot of it begins with our own experiences, I think. And, you know, Ireland is a very Catholic country up until relatively recently. And I grew up in a family where my mother had 10 children. Uh, she wasn't in a very happy marriage. And she often spoke quite openly about how she would never have chosen to have so many children. Uh, it certainly wasn't by choice, and I know she would have tried to access contraception at various times, once successfully before her husband found out and stopped her taking the pill. But I think really my interest in, in kind of reproductive rights more broadly uh, began with that personal experience of just seeing you know, the impact on, on my own mother's life. But I think more broadly then, um, as I started to really read up on and and, and learn about the impact of something like a a ban on abortion, it became clear to me just how wide the tentacles of something like that spreads and, you know, how much a constitutional ban that Ireland had, which we can talk about again, how much that really affects the lives of women in every way, in your work, in your access to healthcare, in everything, not just specific to reproductive healthcare, but it really just changes the status of women much more generally. If you can control women's um, you know, reproduction, you can really control them in totality. So, so that's, I guess, why I think it's, it's a very important frontier no i i completely agree um but before we jump into um the sort of abortion issue more generally um you have written a book repealed which traces the history of the abortion campaign in ireland um could you explain a little bit about the the history of the abortion campaign in ireland i understand you've written a book about it so maybe give this the summary of the book um yeah no yeah no I can do that and obviously it's very connected to the 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 UK story so as as your listeners may know Ireland was part of the United Kingdom uh, until 1922 so um, abortion had been banned in Ireland in the late 1800s as happened all over the United Kingdom 
before that, it wasn't particularly controversial issue. Um, and I think that's important that people know that across the world, it wasn't a particularly controversial issue until the 1800s. So when abortion was banned in the UK in 1861, that also extended to Ireland. But when abortion was um, allowed in the UK, it wasn't decriminalised, it was allowed within certain circumstances in 1967. Ireland by that stage was uh, had broken free, was an independent um, country, aside from Northern Ireland. So the law didn't didn't extend to the Republic of Ireland, obviously, but it was also wasn't extended to Northern Ireland. So what happened from 1967 was Irish women started to travel to the UK in large numbers to access abortion, including Northern Ireland women who weren't allowed to have abortion at home. And again, you know, this wasn't a particularly controversial thing. It was something that just happened quietly and silently outside of the gaze of the media. So what's very important about the Irish story of the ban on abortion was that it was a ban that was deliberately inserted into our constitution in 1983, in many ways out of the blue and in many ways against the grain of the kind of, you had, I usually don't describe feminism in waves, but that time that's usually called that second wave of, of feminist activism. So there was a lot of things changing in Europe in particular. So Ireland in the middle of all this, uh, a very small counter-conservative movement lobbied the Irish government successfully uh, and a uh, complete ban was put into our constitution, which equated the life of a woman to the life of a fetus. So that was what the ban did. So if somebody was pregnant and they were unwell, a doctor had two patients and had to treat each patient equally. They couldn't prioritize the life of the woman. So it was really, a, really a very draconian ban. Um, as I say, completely against the grain of what was happening elsewhere in Europe. And it really set down a cultural marker in Ireland which rolled back on a lot of the, the sort of gains that had been made by um, feminists leading up to that point, so in the 1970s. So, you know, three years after the ban on, uh, the ban was put into the constitution, you had an unsuccessful attempt to legalise divorce, where many of the same players were involved in that campaign as well. And it really became sort of no country for uh, for women in Ireland for many years. You know, this was a country that was also institutionalizing hundreds of thousands of women who became pregnant outside of marriage because Ireland was very much ruled by a theocracy. I mean, you know, the way people talk about it in the day to day in Ireland is we say we got rid of British rule, but we then introduced Catholic rule. So there was this kind of continued, um, you know, outside force, um, Catholicism being the, the, the guiding principle both legally and culturally, I mean, there were laws that 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 controlled the lives of women, and there were laws that really, you know, if something was was against Catholic law, there tended to be a law about it in the in the legislation books in Ireland as well. So really, it was from 1983 that a pro-choice movement in Ireland became active. Uh, it ebbed and flowed for 35 years, but it, it was eventually the reason why. 
abortion was introduced in Ireland and why the successive governments who opposed the pro-choice movement were eventually left with no option but to call another referendum where there was overwhelming um, public support. So people voted by a 66.4% majority to remove this offensive um, clause from our constitution. And obviously within those 35 years, there was a lot of tragedy that, you know, women died, um, up to 15 women traveled, women and pregnant people traveled to the UK and other countries every day. Many people had, like my mother probably, had um, children that they didn't want or weren't in a position to care for. And as with any bans on, on abortion, it was poor women, women with a lot of care responsibilities, women in abusive relationships, women who didn't have papers to travel. They were the people who, who really experienced the, the impacts of the ban. Yeah, of 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 course. Um, yeah, it, it, I guess it always tends to be the 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 people who are most vulnerable within any category who suffer the most. Um, but one of the things when I was sort of researching this prior to this this recording was um, one of the things that jumped out to me was, was the role of the Catholic Church, um, and I read a couple of articles saying that. Um, mass attendance amongst young people nowadays is more at about 20 to 30 percent whereas historically it's been 80 to 90 percent and obviously the catholic church in recent years has you know had a really bad rep with allegations of sexual assault paedophilia and child abuse and do you think the the reduced role in the catholic of the catholic church in the the pro-life movement sort of um going against the, the the legalization of abortion in Ireland do you think that had a do, do you think that helped legalize abortion again I think definitely uh, if you look you know let's go back again to 1983 when the the ban was in I would have been given I'm, I'm using inverted commas here I would have been given pro-life paraphernalia from my school I would have had lessons in school about how abortion was murder I would have been one of the vast majority of young people in Ireland at the time, so I was 14, I would have been one of the vast majority of young people who fed the line of the Catholic Church. So they really had an enormous amount of power. Um, I remember my own mother used to say, when I asked her, why did she go to Mass? I remember she used to say, because I'm afraid I might get struck by lightning if I don't. It wasn't because she had a deep faith, it was because that was the the level of power that the church held over people in Ireland. But you're right, I think things began changing in the 1990s in particular, and it was because of a lot of the um, scandals that emerged. So obviously uh, that a number of um, priests in particular, but also nuns in institutions had been, you know, committing the most heinous crimes against children and against women and were being protected by the Catholic Church hierarchy. So there were a number of high profile cases. Um, there's a documentary called Suing the Pope that uh, was broadcast, which was really looking at the hierarchy of the church and its role. There were a number of falls from grace and really the Catholic Church lost its moral monopoly around that time. Um, there was also, you know, the influence from overseas, you know, things like the internet starting to arrive, um, you know, more television channels, just more exposure 
which made Irish people realise, or people living in Ireland, that the way the world worked from our vantage point wasn't universal. So I think it was a culmination of those things really led to the church losing all of its moral power in Ireland. But I think it's very important to, to stress that they may have lost moral power, but they still have significant power in Ireland. So the Catholic Church owns and runs um, the vast majority of schools in Ireland still. I mean, I think it's nearly as high as 90% of our primary schools and a huge percentage of um, post-primary schools also. Two of my own children went to a convent school. One of them is there today. So it is still, it has, as I say, I think if you think of it in terms of that cultural monopoly, it's gone, but it still has significant control over education and we have a situation in Ireland where our future flagship National Maternity Hospital has just been signed over to a private company which has a strong Catholic ethos. So yes you're right the Catholic Church has lost a lot of power people don't go to mass people don't tend to practice in the same way but it still has a special position uh, in the corridors of power, I would suggest. And I mean, we really have to watch that. If you look at the, the regression and the rollback in the United States around abortion, a lot of that did come from, you know, lay Catholic institutions, which can be extremely powerful anti-abortion lobbyists. I'm painting a very grim picture of Ireland. It's not all bad. No, no, not at all. I um. I I I guess I I meet a lot of I'm traveling at the moment and I meet a lot of Irish people um and it's definitely on my hit list to go and visit Ireland and because they're always so much fun so so don't worry you're not you're not creating absolutely um, <laughs> but yeah I, I guess following on from that a little bit are you therefore worried about abortion rights in being at risk in in the UK in Ireland um, because I know, you know, I was speaking with someone else a, a few months ago and she was explaining to me how how actually, despite, you know, in, in England, us thinking, oh, we're, we're fine. You know, the situation in the US is 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 definitely not something that we're at risk of. It's it's actually very much not the case. Um, so I'm wondering if you have, have a take on that. Yeah, I would agree with uh, whoever else you were talking to. I think we always have to look at the fact that there is a significant gap between what ordinary people think is just and right and what the people in power implement. So take Ireland as the first example. We had resounding result in our referendum and clear support for um, abortion health care. Yet we have one of the most conservative laws in Ireland, or in, in Europe, excuse me. Ireland has one of the most conservative laws in Europe. We breach World Health Organization guidelines throughout our legislation. We don't even use the word abortion in our legislation. So we have a terrible law. And abortion is still a crime in Ireland, just like it is still a crime in the United Kingdom, which a lot of people don't realise. So basically the way the laws work is abortion is illegal, except if you fit into these particular criteria. I think that's a, a really important point to emphasize because all of the time that stigmatizes abortion that has this presumption that there's something wrong about it um, there should be no laws on abortion it should simply be um, controlled within the, the the usual guidelines that exist within healthcare there should be the same guidelines as if you're getting your 
tonsils out. Um, so I think we are starting from a, a low base. Like even in the UK, you need the consent of two doctors. So we're starting from, from a low base and we are seeing a significant backlash from the conservative right. And I do think that the uh, overturning Roe v. Wade will have an impact in the United Kingdom. I think already, if you look at research, I know of research by Pam Lowe, which tracks an increase in um, protests outside abortion care providers. I think what Roe v. Wade is, it does is it gives oxygen to an anti-abortion movement. And most importantly, it prevents draconian laws in other countries from being lifted anytime soon. So, you know, if they ban abortion tomorrow in the United Kingdom, most people will be able to access pills. There will be an influx of illegal pills, which happened in Ireland, which is happening in the United States to a, to a certain extent. But there are many parts of the world where that just isn't the case. In the Philippines, for example, estimates are that around a thousand women a year die from unsafe abortions. And that's not counting the people who die when they have um, medical complications during pregnancy, as happened in, in, in Poland for two women since abortion was banned in Poland in 2020. So I think we have to be very careful around um, what has happened in the United States. And we have to be proactive around, you know, fighting for better laws, but also getting abortion taken out of the law. And just to sort of confront the moral argument head on, um, we really just need to not go there, in my opinion. People are entitled to hold whatever opinion they want. It does not stop abortions happening. Women, pregnant people will always end pregnancies. They have always ended pregnancies. You're not going to stop that. Banning them or limiting them just makes it more dangerous. It doesn't serve any other purpose. No, I I 100% agree. Um, And one of the things that I thought was interesting, which I think um, might be really um, useful for our listeners to hear a little bit about, is the... um, the difference in the law between Ireland and Northern Ireland and how that's affecting these women's lives in terms of traveling to England to have to obtain an abortion and things like that. Would you be able to explain that a little bit for our listeners, please? Yeah, yeah, I can, of course. Yeah, no problem. So as I was explaining, abortion is a criminal offense in the Republic of Ireland. However, you are allowed to have an abortion before 12 weeks. Once there is a three-day wait period, after 12 weeks, when two doctors consent, and they can only consent if the fetus will definitely die within 28 days of birth. So there's still lots of people in the Republic of Ireland who have to travel mostly to uh, the UK, mostly to England, because um, they have a fetal anomaly, but the doctors cannot guarantee that a baby would die, which is practically impossible to do. So people are going to you know, English hospitals and doctors are saying to them, what are you doing here? We thought this had all been sorted. So, you know, there's a risk there for the people who are um, traveling, as well as the inconvenience, as well as breaking care with the doctors that they have in the country that they're living in. And then obviously where people who perhaps don't have the papers to travel or the money to travel are uh, unable to do so and may have to carry unviable pregnancies to term. 
In Northern Ireland, abortion has been decriminalised. So the real difference there is that if somebody does uh, take pills at home um, and they have some sort of complication, which is extremely rare, by the way, they can they can go to their hospital or a doctor without any fear of prosecution and they will be looked after. I mean, people will, would be looked after anyway in, in the Republic of Ireland, but it takes away that fear factor. Another big thing about decriminalisation is that it takes away what's called the chill effect for doctors. So doctors don't have to be worrying that if they make the wrong decision um, and somebody else, for example, objects because of conscientious objection, when abortion is criminalised in the Republic of Ireland, they could go to jail for up to 14 years. So in Northern Ireland, that provision is um, that can't happen because it's not a criminal offence. However, things are really bad in Northern Ireland because the law was introduced through Westminster. And I can go into more detail about how that happened in a minute if you want. But it was introduced through Westminster. So never through Stormont, which is the, the home of um, Northern Irish rule. And as a result, there has been a concerted attempt by Stormont MPs to block a law that they didn't introduce themselves. So they haven't commissioned any funding for services. So yes, you can have an abortion in Northern Ireland, but what good is that if the health, um, the NHS doesn't have any money to provide the services? So lots of people in Northern Ireland continue to travel to England uh, because it's cheaper to do that than to come south where they have to pay I think it's around 400 euro unless they have a social security number, which many people in Northern Ireland would not have because, you know, they would have a, a, a UK social security number. So it's this crazy situation. The law in Northern Ireland is quite good. It's actually one that many people in the Republic of Ireland would say, well, we'll take your law. If we could have that law island-wide, and services, GP-led service, services also island-wide, I think things would be, you know, not terrible. There shouldn't be, should be no laws, as I say, but Northern Irish law is quite liberal in terms of international comparisons. Yeah, when I was um, reading about the Northern Irish situation and, and, and the lack of funding being given to to, to the abortion service I thought it was crazy um how I don't know I just it, we're in the 21st century and that's still happening which in a way isn't shocking but in a way it, it, it is um and then finally um and just to, I mean just to explain do you want me to just explain quickly the kind of series of events yeah I mean if, Northern if, Ireland if, or yeah if you're happy to yeah, I mean, just as I as I understand them, so you have this referendum in the Republic of Ireland in 2016. A lot of people from Northern Ireland travelled over the border and helped with canvassing. The, the 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 mood was very high at the time, so there was an immediate kind of impetus to change things in Northern Ireland. So there was cases being brought to the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, one particular case where the European Court said, "This is not for us to decide. This is for." or the, the, the governing authorities to decide. So one of the first things that happened was that Theresa May, who was the prime minister in the UK at the time, made a statement which says that she thought that the laws should be extended to Northern Ireland. The reason she had never done that before is because her government was being propped up by the DUP. 
which is a unionist party, anti-abortion unionist party. So she went against her partners in coalition and uh, Labour MP then Stella Creasy did a huge amount of work in pushing legislation through Westminster. What happened then was that when it was passed in the House of Lords in the UK, the Northern Ireland Assembly were told you have six months within which you can come together again and, you know, debate this law. But they never did. The government in Northern Ireland was suspended over a completely different reason, but they never came together for the six months. So the law, literally with the passing of time at midnight on a particular day, it became the law became effective in Northern Ireland. So it's a really kind of interesting turn of events. But, you know, obviously the situation today is reflective of that. So the will was never there politically, still isn't there politically in Northern Ireland. So are you saying that it was the 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 people in Northern Ireland were supportive of sort of further abortion rights, but the politicians weren't? Or, or what do you mean by that last comment? Well, I mean, I would assume that that is the case, but it's never been tested. But anywhere where you ask the electorate to vote, they typically vote for the most liberal option given to them. So Ireland have had... Uh, um, I think four, apart from when the eighth went in, there have been three further referendums and the electorate have always voted for the most liberal option, despite the fact that Roe v. Wade was introduced in the United States. You know, it's this repeated statistics saying that the majority of people in America are in favour of abortion care. So we never actually asked people in Northern Ireland, but I think it would be pretty safe to say that there, w- there would be uh, majority in favour of the um, UK laws being, ex- well, actually, they don't need UK laws, of their own law being properly funded. But it all happened through Westminster. It didn't happen through Northern Ireland. Right. Um, no, that's that's really interesting. Um, and then finally, um, I guess this is possibly the most important question, but... Um, what advice would you give to a young woman or maybe a listener who's in a situation where they or a friend of theirs is considering an abortion and possibly does not have access to an abortion easily? So there are organisations out there that give information. If you're in Ireland, there's the My Options um, website, which, which lists GPs. In the UK, there are you know services on universities and other charities that give out that information, other activist groups that give out that information. But your question really shows why it's so important that activist groups, you know, stick with many of the original uh, things that we used to do, you know, uh, stickers on toilet doors with numbers, uh, information, getting information out as often as we can. In my own university, I um, got hold of stickers with phone numbers and I put them on the inside of toilets around the university and within two days they were gone somebody had taken them down so there's this cat and mouse that goes on of me putting them up somebody else taking them down so I think um the advice I would give to the young person is um you know obviously depending on the laws that are there but try and get the information you need there should be pills available uh, try and get supports from activist organizations talk to somebody don't Try anything at home yourself, as they say. And for activist groups, I would say your question really illuminates why it is so important that we continue the fight. 
you have a situation, as I said, in, in the UK where there are protests outside clinics. That's going to turn people off um, going. It may be pe- leave people later in a pregnancy. We know that only 5% of people who have abortions regret it. So don't feed into this narrative that's put out there by the anti-abortion movement that you're going to regret this in the future. This just isn't what people's experiences are who have abortions. You know your body, you know uh, what's right for you. So, you know, stick with your decision. No, I think I, I think that's really good advice because I think I, I guess I guess regret is I think maybe the biggest fear for 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 young people when they're thinking about having an abortion. Um, and then finally, before we finish, but ask around. Ask if you ask people, and if you ask around within your own circles, if you you know read up online, the regret narrative is something that has been inserted by the anti-abortion movement. Maybe for some people, absolutely, and I don't mean to minimise that. But anybody who attends care with a GP or in an abortion clinic, there are qualified people in there who will talk you through your decision, who will make sure that you're one hundred percent happy who will probe into whether or not you want to uh, consider other options and who will give you the information about those other options also. Yeah, no, I I, I think you're, you're, I mean, I don't think I know you're right. Um, but then lastly, we like to finish this podcast on a bit more of a lighter note um, and just ask some, some, some lighter questions, I guess. Um, and I guess normally I have sort of a set, list of questions but I, I wanted to ask you this question and um what's your favorite thing about Irish people we talk a lot I like <laughs> chatting I like talk I like uh yeah and we sing we're quite good singers too we play music uh that's what I like about Irish uh culture one of the many things <laughs> and what, what would you recommend in Ireland if you had to give some recommendation so if you're for some for tourists is somebody coming to Ireland? No, no. Is that I'm what just, you mean? Yeah, just in general. Like, is there anything specific? Hit the coast. Coast. Yeah, hit the, hit the west coast, the cliffs, the islands. Have a pint of Guinness. Uh, definitely uh, try a pint of Guinness. And uh, yeah, get outdoors. Beautiful, beautiful outdoor uh, amenities in Ireland. Beautiful beaches, even in our cities. Capital city, Dublin, has beaches and mountains. <laughs> Well, um, that sounds not many beaches in London. No, no, I, I, I need to come and visit Ireland. I have decided. Um, but thank you so much for your time. It's super interesting. For sure, for sure. We and and um, yeah, no problem. problem.